We're going to read today from 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. I'm going to be reading from the New King James. I had another message on my heart to bring and felt like the Lord redirected me. And so I always, always, if I know what his will is, I'm going to be doing it. So I can do that at another time, but I, I'm reading today from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. We could say, dun, 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 dun. The Lord sent Nathan unto David. He came unto him and said, I'll insert this. David, I want to tell you a little story. I think you'll get a kick out of it. There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb, which he had bought and nourished up and it grew up together with him, part of the family. It grew up together with him and with his children. It ate, my translation says, it ate of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. Let's read that verse again. There came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming to him, but took or stole the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was to come or dressed it for his company. And David's anger was kindled greatly against the man. He got hot under the collar. David's anger was kindled greatly against the man and he said to Nathan, as the king liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb four times. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said unto David, You are the man. You are the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. That's a lot, isn't it? You don't think so. I'll read it again. He gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah, the whole country. And if that had been too little, if that were not enough, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. 
Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house. That's probably one of the worst judgments that you'll find in the Bible. You slain Uriah with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me. Notice it doesn't say you despise Uriah. Uriah was one of David's finest, most loyal, most diligent men. But God said, God said, because thou hast despised him and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, out of your own family, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. For thou didst it secretly. He didn't spread the word around too much about what he was doing. Thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Heavenly Father, we join together in these moments praying that you would cause your word, Lord, to bring light to our souls, our spirits. Father, we thank you for the time of worship that we've had. Thank you for our musicians, our worship leader, the sound people, the drummer, and all, everyone. We thank you for them, Father. But Lord, we come to the most important part of any service, and that is when the word of God is spoken, is brought forth. So I pray in Jesus' name that you would speak to us. And Lord, that you would give us ears to hear. We know that your word is blessed. It is anointed. Sometimes our ears are not so blessed. We're not ready to receive. I pray that you would touch us that you would speak to us clearly and that you would give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All of what we have known and learned and experienced through the Scriptures, all of David's history presented him as a compassionate man. Amen? You know that? Nod your head, please. That's seven or eight of us. Good. Remember that if you say amen, I get through a lot sooner. Just want to warn you about that. If you don't say amen, I have to go around the bush several times. <clears throat> David's history presented him as a man of great compassion a man of a compassionate nature, a chivalrous man. I mean, I know what chivalrous is, or chivalry is. He was a chivalrous man in the day before chivalry was pronounced dead. David was obviously a generous man. I don't have time to bring out instances that will confirm that. David was obviously a generous man. We could even call him a tender man, a tender type of man. You say, well, what about Goliath? Well, he wasn't tender with Goliath, but that wasn't time to be tender. But David was obviously a generous man, a tender man, 
and we could go on and on and on. This tender, chivalrous, generous man, this compassionate man, is visited, as we just noticed. He is visited, visited by the prophet of God one day. Unannounced, not sent for by the king, He was a man, this man who came to meet David was a man on a mission. Nathan tells David the story that I just read to you. There may have been more to it than actually got into the record, but there's plenty in the record. Nathan tells David a story of a mean, heartless, selfish man and all that is best in him, or all that is not so good in him. And David begins to burn with indignation. The prophet said that there was a man, this is just a, an illustration that he created. He said there was a man who was, had company that was on the way to come to him. He was a very wealthy man. He had everything in the world he could need. Had plenty of everything. But this man in the story was a heartless, mean, cruel, selfish man. He got to thinking about what the menu would be. And he decided that it should be leg of lamb. I'm not sure what that is. I've never put it in my mouth, but maybe you have. He got to thinking about it, and he looked out over the pasture and saw all the sheep that he had, but his stinginess overcame him, and he knew that down the street, not too far away, there was another man who had only one lamb. One lamb. And in this story, you know the story as well as I, I'm sure, but in this story, he decided to slip down there or send somebody down there probably after dark and get that lamb and bring it back and have his people, his family, his chef, whoever, to dress it so they would have something. All because he didn't want to take a lamb or a sheep out of his own fold. He wanted to keep everything. There are people in the world that say, get all you can, can all you get, and keep the rest. Get all you can, can all you get, and keep the rest. David is burning with indignation when he hears the story. He doesn't know who the story is about. The prophet did not come in saying, I got to, talk to you, bud. <clears throat> He's burning with in indignation, anger, wrath. It seems to command the attention of the king of Israel. Let me read just the first six verses, and then we'll move on very quickly. The Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks, not just a lot of sheep, but he had many flocks, groups of sheep and herds. But the poor man had nothing save one little lamb, which he had brought, bought up and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It, it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his own bosom and was a donor a daughter unto him. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress it for the wayfaring man that was coming to him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was to come. And David's anger was greatly, greatly kindled against the man in the story. And he said unto Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that has done this, 
shall surely die. I'm not sure that David even let him finish up all of the details of the story, but he blurted out, this man, bring him to me. I will have him put to death for what he has done. The prophet threw cold water on David's righteous wrath, saying to him, you, David, are the man. You're the character in my story that I have told you. It hit David like the head of a sharp spear that went right through to the heart of David. I would not be afraid to say that David either collapsed or almost collapsed when Nathan said to him, you are the man. David has already pronounced judgment. He's the judge and the jury. And he doesn't realize that he is the character in the story. When, he, when Nathan pointed his forefinger of the prophet, he drove home the application this dramatic scene, this dramatic scene before us suggests to us, first of all, that we are strangely, we are strangely blind to our own faults. First point is, we are strangely blind to our own faults. If a, man, if a man's sins is held in front of him and it's altered a little bit, it's disguised a little bit, that man, like David, may exclaim, that is horrid, that is ugly, that is awful. If he thinks that it is the conduct of someone other than himself that he is judging, he will readily condemn it. We've stopped talking for a moment about David, and now we're talking about you and me, the people of God. You say, well, people of God are people of God. They don't do that. Oh, yeah, they do. Yes, they do. We are strangely blind to our own faults. We can see everybody else's faults, but we have a hard time seeing our own faults. If he thinks, this person thinks that he is the, the conduct, it is the conduct of someone else other than himself that he is judging, he will readily condemn it. That is the story of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Have you noticed that we have two sets? Have you noticed that we have two sets of names for vices or sins? Have you noticed that? Well, you need to stop right now and notice that. I've only been getting one person saying amen, so I don't know. I'm... Have you noticed that we have two sets of names for vices and sins? One, one set of vices makes excuses. One set of vices makes excuses. The other set puts them in their true hideousness. You say, Ron, do you, you sound like we're a bunch of sinners. Well, not, I'm not trying to sound that way. But God said this, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, God is talking about His people. It's not enough 
to pray. We need to pray, but it's not enough to pray. We must humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from, his, from our wicked ways. He said, then will I hear from heaven. He's not talking about other people. He's talking about the people of God. One set of our excuses, one set of our vices and sins excuses us for them. The other set puts them in, in true hideousness. We keep the one set for home consumption. We keep the one set for home consumption and distribute the plain spoken, ugly set of vices and faults we keep for our friends. That's what we do. You say, Ron, I don't think so. Well, I hope that by the end of the message, it will be very clear to us. One set of vices, one set of sins for ourselves, and another set for other people. Let me illustrate. The, thing, the same thing that I call in myself prudence. Prudence. The same thing which I call in myself prudent, prudence, when I see it in you, I will call it meanness. Call it meanness. In me, it's prudence. Prudence is, is very often a good thing. Talks about wisdom. Talks about doing the right thing. I call it in myself prudence. I call it in others meanness. The same thing which we call in ourselves generous living. Generous living we call in someone else sensualism. Sensualism. They live by their senses. I saw a group of ministers on television and uh, someone said, now that man right there, he and his wife teach faith and they have faith and they live by that faith. And I think he was alluding to the fact that he was a billionaire and by his own mouth, a long time billionaire, a minister of the gospel. When I see that in myself, any tendency in that direction in myself, that is just living wisely. That's being careful with what we have. Or sensualism. What is righteous indignation in me? When I see it in you, is passionate anger. Let's just switch it around. Let you say, what is righteous indignation in me when I see it in you? It is passionate anger. We, we have every child of God, every child of God has blind spots. That includes you and me. All of us have blind spots. All of us have places that we can't see. That which in the man judges his own conduct as being just a slight problem is in his friend when he judges him blasphemy. So the king, the king who had never thought when he stole Uriah's wife or his little little lamb from the flock, and put him to death by treacherous orders, setting him, setting her husband, or setting Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, setting him in front of the battle, and then having very explicit instructions that said, put him right out on the very front and 
when you when the battle is raging, then pull all your troops back, but don't bother telling him. Can you imagine that? It's hard for me to imagine that a man like David could do that sort of thing. But that's what we read in the Bible, and God has it in the Bible so that we know that He is a gracious God, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy, forgiving all of that. <clears throat> and so we go around and around, condemning our own vices when we see them in other people. We go around and around, condemning our own vices that we have in other people, but not in ourselves. So the king stole away Uriah's one lamb. You know that he was not talking about literally a lamb, but he was talking about the wife of Uriah. And he put him to death. You say, Ron, you've got it mixed up. He sent somebody to kill him. The word says that he killed him with the sword of someone else. David did. Pulled the army back. Now, I believe I got my story right. I didn't read this part. But... Someone sent word to David that Uriah was dead. And David said, oh, well, all kinds of people get killed in war. Chivalrous, compassionate, gracious, faith-filled. That's what he did. That's what he did. That's what he did. David blazes up at once and righteously sentences the other man to death because he had no pity on him. David never thought of himself as mean, cruel, selfish, Heartless. He never thought of himself that way. But when he was, when he sees a disguised picture of it, he sees it for the devil's child that it is. When he sees it in someone else, disguised just a little bit, Samuel knew exactly what would happen. He knew exactly what would happen. When he sees a disguised picture of it, he sees it for the devil's child that it is. Have you ever heard this? I don't know if this is the totality of the poem or if it's only a part, but it says this, Oh, would some power the gift give us? Oh, would some power the gift give us to see ourselves as others see us. It would from many a blunder free us. I want to read it again. Oh, would some power the gift give us to see ourselves as others see us. It would from many a blunder free us. And may I say that is absolutely correct. It would free us from many blunders, from making ourselves look badly. We judge ourselves and others by two completely different standards. We judge ourselves by two and others by two completely different standards. But there is a 
larger principle, one case that comes under a broader law, it is that we are strangely blind to our own faults. We are strangely blind to our own faults. Why that is so, I'm sure I don't know all about that. When I have a strong wish for something, when I have a strong wish for something that I feel like I've got to have, I don't say any, man, any amens along in here because that wouldn't be nice. When I have a strong wish for something that I feel like I've got to have, I tend to be confused as to the distinction between right and wrong. I'm not famous for very much, but I'm famous for 11 cars. But don't fault me for that, because that, my dad put that on me. At his funeral, I said, my dad left me, will to me, his love for automobiles. Now, don't put those two things together with when I have a strong wish for something that I feel like I've got to have. I will tend to be confused as to the distinction between right and wrong. Lust, lust, L-U-S-T-S, and that's not always a sexual thing, but sometimes it is. Lust, desires, once kindled in a man, once it begins to rage inside of a man, it goes straight to the object of those desires without any regard as to whether or not that object is to be reached by the breaking of human or divine laws. Turn passion loose. Turn passion loose. And the passion is only a blind inclination towards something. And no question of right and wrong comes into play at all. That's not all. Habit familiarizes with evil, reduces our sense of it as evil. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm trying to say. If you or I go into a room that has been treated with something and we are almost suffocated by it. What happens when we've been there for a period of time? What happens? Instead of feeling like we're going to suffocate, we get used to it. We start getting used to it. We breathe more easily as we get used to it. You've heard this, I'm sure. There is a, there are several breeds of fish that are, <clears throat> they are, they live in caverns, dark caverns, caves, in pitch darkness. But they have done that for so long that they no longer have eyes that are developed to see. They have lived out of the light for too long. They have lived out of the light for too long. In the same way, in the same way men live in the love of evil, and they lose the capacity to discern between evil and good. That's all over 
our country today. When a man lives in the love for evil, such as you might find um, on a port pornographic site, on a computer. Now, I know that computers have some use. I'm not sure what it is myself, but I know there is some use for them. But many a man has lost his ministry because he got hooked by something that he saw. I had a man call me. He and I were good friends. We played tennis together for years. And when I would play him, my game would go just like that. He called me. He moved away from where we lived. And he called me one day. He was a school teacher. And he said, Ron, you got to pray for me. I'm in trouble. I said, what's going on? He said, he said, I was looking for something on my computer related to school and all of that. And he says, he said, I saw some things and I was immediately hooked. He said, That's, this is not the worst part, but he said, if I get found out that I had that on my computer in school, I'm out. But that's not the bad part. That, that's bad, but it's not the real bad part. We are strangely Blinded to our own faults. And God wants to help us with that. We don't want to ease over in the dark until we no longer can discern between the dark and the light what has happened to a many a person. God is speaking to someone through this message this morning. He's speaking to someone in this room through this message. It is a very dangerous thing to play with fire. To become blind to sin and blind to all the realities of life. Would you say it is true or is not true that many of us purposely purposely and systematically avoid all questions regarding the nature of our own conduct. Is it not true that many of us purposely and systematically, that means we do it a lot, avoid all questions as to the nature of our conduct? Many of us here today never Never sit down to think whether what we are doing is right or wrong. Now, I know that from many years ago, we got the extreme in the other direction of that. But we don't need to be at either extreme. We need to be more in the middle. Many of us purposely and systematically avoid all questions as to the nature of our conduct. Many of us here today never sit down to think whether what we are doing is right or wrong because deep inside there is a suspicion as to what the answer might be if we sat down and questioned ourselves. So by reason of nursing passions, by listening to wishes, by reason of the habit of wrongdoing, by avoiding investigating of our own character and conduct, we lose the power to decide on the nature of our own actions. That was a lot of words by reason of nursing passions that we know are wrong, and by listening to things that will make us wish for everything, and by reason of the habit of wrongdoing, and by avoiding investigating 
our character and our conduct, we lose the power to decide on the nature of our own actions. Self-love comes in. And there is something else that tends to blind us. Probably no one here this morning would venture to stand and say, I am an exception to needing to confess sins. Are you with me? Probably no one here this morning would venture to stand up and say, Pastor, I'd like to say something. I am an exception to needing to confess sins. Most of us would be ready to unite in acknowledging that all have come short of the glory of God, although in our heart there has never been a trace of self-examination and self-condemnation even when our lips were moving. Do not shrink away into the crowd. Do not, do not shrink away into the crowd. Stand before God. Stand before God. See yourself as God sees you. Look at your actions and never mind what other men's sins are. Do not content yourself by saying, we have sinned. Don't content yourself with saying, we have sinned. Say, I have sinned against thee. I have sinned against you, Lord. I don't know if you know this, but there are no crowds, C-R-O-W-D-S. There are no crowds in God's eyes. He deals with individual hearts. He deals with individual hearts. Now, I know that we, I don't, I don't know that we do that here in this church or whatever, but I know we have people all stand and we all say the prayer, all of that. I wonder, I wonder if that's the right thing to do. God sees us as individuals, every one of us. He sees us as individuals. He loves us as individuals. You and me, every one of us must give an account of himself to God Almighty. Why should we care so much about what people think? Why should we try to manipulate people a little bit and get them to think the way we want them to think? We have blind spots, blind areas in our lives. We call some sins not so bad and some so great. The ones that are not so bad, we take on ourselves. The ones that are bad, we pontificate. We pontificate. It is not enough to say all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It is not enough to say that. Say, Lord, I have sinned against you. He deals with individual hearts. All of us will give an account. Now let me ask you to look at how this story shows us that the work of God's message is to strip away the evil and show the thing in its ugliness. Where do I get that? Look at how this story shows us that the work of God's message is to strip away the veil, take the mask off, and show the thing in all its ugliness. God had to send a prophet to David. A man with divine authority who stood in front of Davis and David and told him the story and then he put his finger 
out in the king's face and said, you are the man in my story. God had to send a prophet to David. Nothing else would suffice to get past his conceit and ignorance. Nothing less could get past the self-conceit and the ignorance which had to be penetrated by the Word of God. As God's messenger, he put into one sentence, he put into one sentence in the original language, which is the Hebrew language, it's only two words. But in our language, it, it requires a number of words. As God's messenger, he put into one sentence, the spirit of the law of God, which individualizes the sinner. It individualizes the sinner and drives home the consciousness of wrongdoing. Conscience is not completely reliable. Did you know that? Conscience is not completely reliable. A person can bribe their conscience. Thank you. A person can bribe his conscience. A person can choke his con conscience or sear his conscience. So a person who ought to be thrashed by his conscience or her conscience is given immunity from it. A standard that fluctuates. You know, I remember when I was doing this message, I remembered that when we were kids, we would uh, get the dictionary, and, and one of the things you would find in the front or the back was standards. It takes this much of this and this much of this and this much of this to make this. A standard. A standard. May I tell you, a standard that fluctuates is not a standard. A standard that fluctuates is not a standard. The standard that tells us that a ruler is 12 inches in length ceases to be a standard if I say that it is 10 inches instead of 12. Or 14 inches instead of 12. The standard is no longer there. God has given a standard. God has given a standard. God has given a standard. It is a revelation of himself, which is to be found in the pages of his word, the Bible. We can set our clocks by his standard. Liberals, liberals say there is no standard. It's every man for himself. It's every man does as he pleases. That's what liberals do. That's what liberals do. I'll do as I please. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I've got a conscience, and I also have a bribe with that conscience. God's standard never changes. Liberals say something is only a sin or not a sin depending on what I think about it. A famous liberal said, I did not have sex with that woman. And in his mind... He probably believes he did not. But he's going to stand before God as well. He's going to stand before God as well. And it won't matter two hoots what he thinks. That just came to mind. If you uh, have a problem with it, see me and I'll, I'll apologize. 
If it is not sin to me, then it is not sin. That's what liberals, that's what, that's a main component in liberalism. If it is not sin to me, then it's not sin. God's standard is unchangeable. Nathan did not say, King David, how do you feel about what I'm telling you? I never like to go to those Bible studies where people sit in a circle and face in and people are asked, well, what do you think that means? What do you think that says? Now, I'm not going to say that's a sinful thing, but I'm saying it ain't for me. What I think the Bible says is, is oftentimes not what the Bible says. We have the Holy Spirit who abides in us, who will be with us, and He will teach us all of the truth. And you can take that to the bank because it will happen if we humble ourselves. I am peculiar in a couple of ways. Um, I don't know how to get back. Nathan did not say, do you feel as though you are above the law? That's what a diplomat would have done. A diplomat would have said, do you feel as though you may be above the law of God? That God makes exceptions when he feels like it. Nathan said, you committed adultery with your number one man's wife, and lo and behold, a child is on the way. Nathan said, you are the man. You are the man. Nathan said, the consequences are awaiting you. The child born from your sin will die. And the Bible says, and you may have a problem with this, but the Bible says God struck the child. Now, you know that I'm not saying what we need to do is knock them around and all that. I'm not saying that. But the Bible says that God struck the child and it died. I think it was seven days later. Nathan said, you committed adultery. Covered it up by killing the husband of the woman that you sinned with. You are the man. There are consequences. The child will die, and the sword will never leave your household. The truest kindness, when Nathan stood before the king, with his eyes flashing, and with something of a stern voice, was for him to say, you are the man. The truest kindness that David, that uh, Nathan could do, when he stood before the king, with his eyes flashing and a stern voice, was for him to say, you are the man. You are the man. You are the man. That was more worthy of God than if he had smoothed David down with a soft speech that would not have aroused his conscience. The surgeon, when he takes his scalpel in his hand, he knows that Desperate measures have to be taken to save this child. And so he doesn't let his feelings enter into it. I don't see how a man takes a scalpel and whacks somebody open and blood goes and all that. Is not God's mercy and love shown for us in this? That he begins all his work in my life and in your life with the sobering indictment, you are the man. You are the man. 
one of the ways I'm peculiar in is I don't really care for these pictures that make Jesus look like he's about to swoon and he's lily white and all of that. I don't, I just don't see that. Finally, God accuses us one at a time. God accuses us one at a time. And he condemns us, if he, if he must, one by one. And he condemns us that he might save us one by one. The meaning of Nathan's words was instantly shown when the king shouted, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Then the prophet said what God whispered in his ear. He said, the Lord has made your iniquity to pass away. See what blessings we derive when we humble ourselves and we honestly see where we're going and we come to God and say, I need help, Lord. I need your help. I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm following my own desires. The accusation was made so that mercy and forgiveness might be granted to David. The apostle put it this way. God hath concluded all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. I know you don't believe it, but I got two half pages and I'm done. God desires to save the world but he can only save men one at a time. That doesn't mean that only one person can get saved in church today. That's not what it means. God desires to save the world, but he can only save men one at a time. A man who comes before God and says, I have sinned. I deserve death. I deserve judgment. When we bow before him, it is just as if, listen to this now, when we stand before him, it is just as if you and I, let me reword that. When we bow before him, it is just as if he and I are the only two beings in the universe. That can help your prayer life. That can help my prayer life if I realize that it's just as if it was only me and God here. Not in a prideful way. There is no such thing as wholesale entrance into God's kingdom and God's church. <laughs> you can believe it or not believe it. There is no such thing as wholesale entrance into God's church and God's kingdom. God's mercy is not given to crowds except they are made up of individuals who have individually received it. There must be my solitary coming to God. There must be the personal act of faith on my part. I'm going to resist that. There must be the personal act of faith on my part. Sir, ma'am, it is not enough for you to say, we have sinned. We must say, I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's not enough for a congregation to say, and, and a lot of churches that, you know, that have this big litany, they say, Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. It's not enough for a congregation to say, Lord, have mercy on us. Your prayer and my prayer must be our own. 
It is not enough that you believe, as most everyone here today believes, that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. That belief by itself will not get you forgiven for your sins. You and I must come close to Him and be able to say to Him, You loved me and gave yourself for me. Come out of the crowd. Come out of the crowd. Stand by yourself. Stretch out your own hand and take Christ, if you haven't done so, for yourself. For yourself. Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him do what? Let him come unto me and drink. He said, and it's still true, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. So I can put my name in there and say, as I come to God, I know He will receive me. I know He will receive me. I know I will feel at home in His presence. So I can just put it in there and say, when I, Richard R. Denham, come to him, he will not turn me away. By your own personal faith in the Lamb of God who died for you, your sins will pass away. And not only that, but all the fullness of God will be your very own. All the fullness of God will be your very own. How long? Forever. All the fullness of God will be your own forever and ever. Would you stand with me?